0: please turn in your Bibles once again to 1 Peter chapter 4. We've arrived at what is truly the heart of this letter. And maybe someone's thinking as we come again to the topic of suffering. Now, pastor, do we really need another message on suffering? I mean, Peter's been talking about this a lot to this point, and he has. That's the main thrust of his letter. It's Primarily, a letter on how to suffer right. But for one thing, the Holy Spirit knows we all suffer, and if you aren't in a period of suffering right now, you will be tomorrow or at some time soon. And I really do believe that what Peter is dealing with here transcends simply suffering, persecution, that is suffering directly as a result of your faith in Christ, and really deals with any suffering you experience. We will all suffer. As some of us will suffer persecution sooner than later. And uh, this is really Peter's final word we could say on suffering. I do believe it is the climax of this letter for many reasons. And uh, so what Peter is going to say here is certainly for all of us. And I trust that we will ask the Spirit of God to bring this truth home to us and to change our life through it. As we... Approach our text here as we read our text, I'll ask that we stand once more out of respect for the reading of God's Word. Let's read First Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 19. And there the word of God says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share in the suffering of Christ. Keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Make sure that none of you suffer as a murderer, or thief, or evildoer, or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. For it is time for judgment... To begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first. What will be the outcome for those. Who do not obey the gospel of God. And if it is with difficulty. That the righteous is saved. What will become of the godless man. And the sinner. Therefore those also who suffer. According to the will of God. Shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator. In doing what is right. That's the reading of God's inherent word. You may be seated. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do, as we have just prayed before, ask that you would show us Christ. We're asking that you would show us the glory of your Son out of your truth this morning. We're asking that your Holy Spirit would take your living word and make it alive to us. And make it live through us. So that others would be impacted and changed by the reality that your word is changing us. Father, you know the suffering of each and every heart in this room. You know the suffering that lies ahead of each and every soul here. And so, Father, please prepare us. Please equip us to respond in a way that will bring glory to your name. In Jesus' name, amen. She was only 22. She was a noble woman who lived in Carthage, North Africa and she was recently married. More recently a mother to a nursing infant. Historians believe that she was a widow as well because her husband is never mentioned in any of her diaries. But she followed her mother's footsteps eventually to become a Christian herself, much to the dismay of her father. Her father was a pagan, strongly resented her decision to convert to Christianity. Well, in the year 203 A.D., at just 22 years old, Vibia Perpetua was arrested. She was arrested by the Roman government along with a slave girl named Felicity who was eight months pregnant and three other young Christians who were new to the faith. They refused to renounce allegiance to Christ and so their execution was scheduled to take place during the military game celebrating the birthday of Emperor Septimius Severus, when Perpetua's father begged her to abandon her Christianity. At one point in their conversation, she asked him, if he could call a jug of water by any other name than what it was. And when he said, no, she told him, well, so too I cannot be called by anything other than what I am, a Christian. When the day came, the men in the group were brought out first into the arena where they were mauled by savage beasts before a cheering crowd. Then Perpetua and Felicity were led into the arena. They were stripped of their clothes before all the people and forced to stand before a rabid heifer which mauled and mangled them so badly that the crowd eventually called out that they had seen enough. So the women were... Removed from the arena, they were reclothed, and then these two young mothers, these two young Christian mothers, were subsequently executed by gladiators before the crowd. Perpetua's last words were famed to be this. This is what she said to her fellow brothers and sisters in the faith before she died. You must all stand fast in the faith and love one another and do not be weakened by what we have gone through. That's pretty much the theme of Peter's letter. I brought this out before in different times in our study, but Peter really gives us his explicit purpose statement for this letter at the end in 1 Peter 5.12, where it says he has written to us that we might stand firm in the true grace of God. And he's shown us what that grace is, our incredible salvation in Jesus Christ, and that this incredible salvation that we have in Jesus Christ, our identity in Jesus comes with a responsibility to live out a Christian testimony to the watching world. And that testimony is going to involve suffering for the sake of Christ. And so Peter is calling us to stand firm. He doesn't want suffering to move us from our faith in Christ, whatever persecution comes. And while we understand Peter's original audience was dealing with some degree of actual persecution for Jesus' name... I've said that the challenge in this paragraph really applies to any suffering we're experiencing and how we respond to our suffering. Because your testimony for Jesus is never more powerful. It is never more impactful to those around you, those watching your life, than when you suffer rightly, than when you respond with grace and with faith in God in the midst of your suffering. And so the basic point, I believe, in this text here is that every Christian needs this kind of a response to suffering. Every Christian needs this Christian response to suffering. And what does this look like? How are we to respond to suffering? Peter gives us six imperatives in verses 12 through 19, but we can really from this observe four principles, I believe. Four principles that ought to shape a Christian response to suffering. The first principle that Peter gives us here in verse 12 for a Christian response to suffering is Expect suffering. Expect suffering. Verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. Peter addresses them as beloved. Of course, he loves these people. That's why he's writing to them, to encourage them. But more importantly, he knows that they are beloved of God. They are his beloved children. And I think that this is so appropriate and meaningful that Peter addresses them this way in light of the difficult things he's about to say. Although our world is full of suffering, it's interesting, isn't it, that we seldom expect suffering. You don't put on your calendar usually all the bad things that are going to happen to you. Those are usually surprises. We don't plan for them. Most often we are surprised like Peter describes here, at the fiery ordeals that come among us. And these fiery ordeals, this expression is describing those most painful experiences of suffering in our life, those crucibles of your life. As common as suffering is to our experience, we hardly ever plan on it. And so we often say things like this. Why me? Why is this happening? We even ask those questions in the midst of suffering. And beneath all of those questions is the subtle assumption That this is not the way life is supposed to be. Something is wrong here. This is not the way that things are supposed to happen in my life. But Peter says, don't think your suffering to be something strange or unusual or out of the ordinary. Why? Why, Peter? Why should a Christian expect suffering? Well, we could give three reasons from the Bible. First, we live in a sin-cursed world. That should be plain to us. And so Christians should expect suffering because we live in a sin-cursed world. And suffering is God's way of reminding you every day. This is not heaven. This is not paradise. This is a sin-cursed world. You won't get that from commercials. (laughs) Watching the commercials that promise you that pain-free, trouble-free life. In exchange for your money, of course. You won't get this from the higher centers of academia. Which are typically about pushing some kind of liberal, progressive politics, where we can have a paradise on earth. You won't get this from most politicians. There are just many in this world who want us to believe that we can have right now a utopia on earth. And I'm all about being optimistic, but not at the expense of reality. Christians of all people should not be naive to think that we'll have paradise on this earth until Jesus comes. That's The point, when Christ returns at the end of this age, we read, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death, no longer any mourning or crying or pain. All that has passed away, Revelation 21 tells us. Revelation 22 says that there will no longer be any curse, but until that time, beloved, we will experience suffering. It's part of this existence in the sin-cursed planet. But Peter can also say that suffering for the Christian is not out of the ordinary. We shouldn't think it's strange. Because this world hates Christ. Another way you could say it is this world is plain evil. Christians should expect suffering because this evil world hates Christ. And when Peter says this, that we should not think suffering strange, I think we could simply just be mindful of the fact that even if you weren't a Christian, people are still going to do you dirty sometimes people are still going to stab you in the back. People are still going to hurt you because this world is full of sinners. We live in an evil world. I mean, let's not be naive. But back in verse 4, even in this very chapter, Peter has acknowledged how that the non-believing culture these people live in as Christians was maligning them, was treating them as outcasts. They, They were persecuting these Christians Because these Christians didn't want to run into the same excesses of evil with them. They wanted to live a different light. And like Jesus would teach in John 3, the darkness hates the light because it exposes their own evil. So we should expect suffering then. This has been a common theme in Peter's letter that if the world persecuted Jesus, right, the world will persecute you too. Jesus said that in John 15. So we shouldn't be surprised at suffering because our world is cursed. Under sin, and the world is evil and hates Christ. But a third reason Christians should expect suffering is that suffering is God's way for refining us. Isn't that so true? This is God's way for refining us. Suffering helps refine away the dross or the impurities from our life. When Peter mentions here this fiery ordeal, which comes upon you for your testing, I think he's probably got in mind Proverbs 27.1, which gives this very idea of the furnace, a fiery furnace, being used for testing gold and silver. Metal workers understand that to purify a precious metal like gold, they will have to put this gold into the furnace, and they heat it up, and the gold melts, of course, and the impurities they can cause to run off or remove from that gold to get pure gold out of the fire. So suffering is for your good. That's what Peter's saying. No pain. No gain. They see that's true in the gym, at least. But what the Bible would teach us is that God's gymnasium for your faith involves suffering. It's for building spiritual strength in His people. And Peter says the fiery ordeal among you, perhaps something right now in your life that you're going through, some intense suffering, or or at least will, God knows, this comes upon you for your testing. Which is to say, God knows... You might not agree, but God knows it's for your good. The child doesn't want to take its medicine. The patient doesn't want to undergo the knife. The athlete doesn't want to suffer the aches of training. The soldier doesn't want to go through the rigors of boot camp. The student doesn't want to suffer through those midterms and finals. And likewise, the Christian doesn't want to undergo suffering. This is not what we choose for ourselves. Where there's suffering in your life, and there certainly will be at some point, where there's suffering in your life, mark it down, God is at work. And God is not only at work where there's suffering in your life, He's not only at work in your suffering, but He intends to make something beautiful of it in your life. Isn't that true? Do you believe that? That your suffering is actually designed by God for your testing to strengthen your faith? After spending many bitter years in a Soviet prison and experiencing a conversion to Christianity, Alexander Solzhenitsyn said this of his time there in that prison. He said, I nourished my soul there. I say without hesitation, bless you prison for having been in my life. And for the Christian, having undergone Suffering, we come to the end of our life and really as a, as a Christian, informed by the word of God, hindsight truly is twenty twenty. I believe every true believer can look back, informed by the word of God, they can look back on their life and say, bless you, my suffering. Bless you, prison. Bless you, sickness. Bless you, those difficult people in my life that drove me crazy. Bless you, tragedy, for having been in my life. Because God you see, was doing something beautiful through it. Peter says, do not be surprised. As though some strange thing were happening. Interesting choice of words. Happening to you. Beloved, nothing simply happens. According to the Bible, nothing simply happens. We are not simply victims of faith. There's a purpose for everything. Your life is a story that God the author is writing. And for all who've been born again, at least, to new life in Jesus Christ. God is not only writing your story, but he has promised you that he will conclude it with a happy ending. So no suffering you're experiencing is some strange thing happening to you. It's all a part of the author's sovereign plan, without which your story would not be complete. And it's like the Bible teaches that he makes all things beautiful in your time, just like the best stories, in my opinion, are the tragedies. They're the ones that have the real plot complication and and, and the real sorrow and the real conflict. And it just resolves beautifully somehow. And that's what God is intending to do through the life of his people. Some Christians are surprised at the suffering in their life because, of course, they've been sold a distorted view of God. This is very common in our culture. Prosperity theology gives us a God who promises you your best life now. It's right now. You can have it. Your best life now. Health, wealth, prosperity, if you'll just do the right things and trust God. And this preaching is very popular, but it's false. It's false. And as Augustine put it, God had one son on earth without sin, that's right, but never one without suffering. All of God's people will undergo suffering. If you're a child of God, expect it. Expect suffering. The second principle that we find Peter gives here for a Christian response to suffering is exult in your suffering. Expect suffering, exult in your suffering. Verse 13, but to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exaltation. Now, if you're reading that honestly, that's backward. That's about as counterintuitive as it gets, that we are going to rejoice in our suffering. I mean, that's not the way I typically... Respond. That's not my first thought that happens in my mind, that comes to my mind when something bad is going on, or at least something I perceive as bad. So how can I possibly, how can you possibly rejoice in suffering? Well, from our text, I believe we can draw out four ways that we can exult in suffering if we know Christ. First, following from the context and everything Peter's just said in verse 12, that nothing just happens to you. Even the suffering in your life, the fiery ordeals are for God's testing in your life. There's a purpose. You can rejoice by knowing God has some good purpose for the suffering in your life. He has some good purpose. You don't even have to know what that purpose is. You will likely never even know the full extent. I don't believe you possibly could know the full extent of why God brings the suffering in your life, at least not in this side of the story. But you can choose to trust God that he does have a good purpose, even for your worst suffering. And knowing that, just knowing that God is working. I'm choosing to believe. God is working together this tragedy somehow for good in my life. You can rejoice in your suffering. Though she was voted best athlete in her single class, a single dive in the Chesapeake Bay rendered her a quadriplegic for life. We would all agree that's tragic, We would say things like, I'm so sorry. Maybe some of us would say, I don't know what to say. But the rest of the story is that this so-called accident would become Johnny Erickson's opportunity to change the world for millions of people with disabilities and to bring many, many souls to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. That's the other side of the story. You can rejoice knowing God has a purpose in your suffering. You can rejoice knowing it is a privilege to suffer for Christ. Peter says, to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, you can rejoice. You can keep on rejoicing. What does it mean to share in the sufferings of Christ? This does not mean, as I've heard from some Roman Catholics, that we are partaking in Christ's actual atonement for sin. There's nothing sacramental here. This isn't removing sin from your life or somebody else's. Sharing the sufferings of Christ means to identify with Christ by identifying with him in his sufferings, uh, by suffering for his sake. For instance, during China's Boxer Rebellion, the story told of how insurgents captured a mission statement and they blocked all the gates but one. And in front of that open gate, they laid a cross flat on the ground and then the word was passed to those inside that any who trampled the cross underfoot would be permitted their freedom. But then any refusing to trample the cross would be shot. And so the first seven students trampled the cross underfoot. They were allowed to go. The eighth student was a young girl. She refused to commit the sacrilegious act, but rather kneeling beside the cross, she prayed for strength. And then rising, she moved carefully around it, out to face the firing squad. And the report is that the remaining 92 students followed her to the firing squad. That is sharing in Christ's suffering. It's not atoning for sin. Only the Lamb of God, who is Jesus Christ alone, can take away the sins of the world. But it is choosing, like 2 Corinthians 4 says, to bear about in our body the dying of the Lord Jesus. We count it an honor. We count it a privilege to identify with Christ by sharing... Not only in his joy, not only in the life he promised, but even in his death. Philippians 1.29 says, For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. There you have it. It's not just a privilege that you can believe on Christ, that God has granted that to you graciously, but that you have graciously been given the opportunity to suffer for his name. This is a privilege. You can rejoice knowing God has a purpose for your suffering. And suffering for Christ is a privilege in which you identify with your precious Savior. But also you can rejoice by knowing your suffering will give way to unspeakable joy at Christ's revelation. Verse 13, Peter says, But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exaltation. Peter's saying, our rejoicing will give way to even greater rejoicing and exaltation when Christ reveals his glory at his coming. This is at the end of all things. Now, we have four children, and Anna's no rookie then in suffering the discomfort, the pains of mourning sickness, and the agonies of childbirth. This is just something that she has gone through now four times, but as she's carrying our fifth child, you can talk to her and see she is excited. In spite of all the pains and the aches and the tribulation that comes with actual labor and delivery, there is a joy in bearing a child. There's a joy in looking forward because a mother who's pregnant, she can know that this suffering will give way to unspeakable joy. Jesus said this in Revelation twenty two twelve. 12. He said, behold, I'm coming quickly. I'm coming quickly, and my reward is with me. That is the joy, that is the hope, that is the expectation of every true believer in Jesus Christ. And no suffering that you are undergoing now changes that fact. You can rejoice if you're in Christ, knowing that your suffering will give way to great joy. You can, so you can rejoice knowing God has a purpose to your suffering, And that suffering for Christ is a privilege in sharing with him in this way. And you can rejoice in trials because you can always say, this too will pass. Joy will come in the morning when Jesus returns. My sorrow will give way to greater joy. But fourthly, you can rejoice by knowing you are not alone in your suffering. Verse 14, Peter says, if you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed. How so? He says, because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Peter's already reminded us that we are blessed to suffer for Jesus. But now he's expanding on that thought. And he's telling you, this is what the blessing is. The spirit of God and of glory is resting on your life in those moments. He says, maybe, maybe you're not suffering persecution for the sake of Christ, for the name of Christ, but whatever suffering you are called to endure, you do realize that Jesus has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. He's promised to be with you. So Richard Wormbrand tells us then that there was once a fiddler who played so beautifully that everyone danced. But there was this deaf man who could not hear the music, and so he considered all these people insane. Wormbrand explains those who are with Jesus in suffering, that's persecution or any suffering you are enduring, but you know you're with Jesus. He says they hear this music, which other men are deaf, to which other men are deaf, they dance and do not care if they are considered insane. It was Wormbrand who suffered 14 years torture in a communist prison. But he said, For years, I never saw the sun, no one except the interrogator who beat me. They beat until they broke the bones. They used hot irons, they used knives, they used everything. Yet he said that in it all there were times when he was overcome with joy. Imagine this. Overcome with joy. In fact, he writes that he would actually stand up in his weakened state at times and dance around his cell as if angels were dancing with him. That is very much like Paul and Silas singing at midnight in a prison after being beaten in the stocks. But the prisoners heard them. Because Paul and Silas heard the music. Paul and Silas could hear what others couldn't. They knew what others didn't. They knew, he is with me. He is with me in the suffering. Maybe you admit, well, pastor, I just don't know. Something you're going through now, or, or even just hearing about suffering that these other believers are Are enduring, you say, I don't know. I don't know if I could do that. I don't know if I could respond that way with rejoicing in such a circumstance. But to this, Peter answers that in suffering for Christ, the spirit of glory and of God rests on you, which is to say, yes, you can't do this alone, but God is not telling you to. God does not want you to. You're not alone. He's saying the spirit of God will empower you in such situations. If following Jesus leads you into the fiery furnace, and it certainly will. And this is not, again, just persecution. But this is any trial and sickness or whatever that Christ has called you to endure. If Christ is calling you to go through the fire, there in the fire, you will find yourself standing in the midst with the Son of God. This is Bible. This is what the Lord teaches us. This is the blessing that we need. It's the blessing of God's blessed presence on the life of his people. And truly, in such a state, we couldn't help but exult in our suffering. So Peter's made it plain that suffering is unavoidable for the Christian. You can't escape it. You should expect it. And rather than cowering then and living in fear, we should face that suffering with courage and faith, exulting in our suffering. But now he tells us the purpose for which we are to suffer For a biblical response to suffering, we must expect suffering. We must exult in our suffering. But the third principle Peter gives us for a Christian response to suffering is that we must endure suffering for the glory of God. Just as God has a purpose behind your suffering, he wants you to live with a purpose in your suffering. And Peter begins with some ways we are not to suffer. Verse 15, he says, make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer, or a thief, or an evildoer, or a troublesome meddler. There is no glory in suffering for evil. While all of us will suffer, Peter just once again wants to be clear that we must not suffer for the wrong reasons, such as our own sinfulness and or stupidity. Peter's already said this plainly in 1 Peter 2, 12 and 14, and this should be so obvious to us, especially in the first two cases. I mean, the first two sins he lists here murder, stealing. These are not just sins against God. These are crimes against society. Of course, if you do those things, you're going to bring suffering upon your own head. And yet we hear stories of some calling themselves Christians and attacking abortion clinics. They are taking lives and justifying it. They're justifying their evil. And there are some even so-called gospel ministers who've been jailed because of charges of tax evasion and Child molestation or sex scandals or embezzling funds from a church and such. And when we hear these things, we even hear accounts of of such people at times saying things like, well, I'm being persecuted. I'm being unfairly targeted. And Peter would say, no, you're not. You are simply receiving what is due. This is justice. You're reaping what you've sowed. And he doesn't want us to have any such thing to do with these behaviors. Peter says, no, these people are getting what they deserve. And don't miss the last item. Peter adds, he says, don't also suffer as a troublesome meddler. Because he knows we'll be quicker to distance ourselves from those first categories. He says, and also, I think generally here we could say, don't suffer for stupidity. Don't go looking for trouble. Don't go sticking your nose in other people's business. You're just asking for trouble. And there's no glory in suffering for being a jerk. But there's glory in suffering as a Christian. And that's why he says in verse 16, But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed. But it's to glorify God in this name. Some believe the term Christian was originally a derisive term because as far as we know, it was a term given to Christians by pagans. And so because the pagans understood Christ died in a shameful way on a cross, they derisively identified Christ's followers as Christians. You are Christ followers. You're just like him. So Peter's talking about the suffering that we endure for bearing the stigma of being a Christ follower. And this brings to mind a scene from the Gospels. Because the man behind this letter to us is the Apostle Peter. And we must remember that Peter himself was once ashamed of identifying with the name of Jesus. Do you remember from the Gospels? When it came to Time to deny choosing to deny the name of Christ. Peter did so three times before the rooster crowed twice. Just like Jesus warned he would. And it all came down to the name of Jesus. Peter was ashamed to identify himself with that name. He was ashamed. He failed to glorify God in this name because he was ashamed of Jesus. And at that time he wasn't ready to suffer as a Christian. But now writing years later, this is a different Peter. And this man is no hypocrite to say what he says here to us. Peter would later say in the book of Acts, we read to a man lame in the feet, he would say, in the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, rise up and walk. And the man did. Peter witnessed the miraculous power of God in the name of Jesus. Peter preached boldly and uncompromisingly the name of Jesus, salvation only in the name of Jesus Christ. And by this time in his life, Peter even carried in his body, scars, scars from beatings he'd received that proved his devotion to Jesus' name. Peter would eventually give his very life for this name. And so Peter's telling us, don't be ashamed. Don't be ashamed like I once was of the name of Jesus. Look, if you've been ashamed of Jesus' name, there's hope for you as a Christian. Peter was. But you need to get past that. You need to get over that. Being ashamed of Jesus means... Not that you don't love him. I'm sure you do. But being ashamed of Jesus means that you don't love him enough. And there's only one way to overcome this shame. You'll only overcome shame for suffering for the name of Jesus Christ if your life becomes ultimately about the glory of God. When the glory of God in your life Glorifying God, lifting him up, exalting him, furthering the cause of Jesus Christ becomes more important to you than anything else, than your reputation, than your comfort and conveniences or whatever, your hobbies, and all those things that suffering would deprive you of. When that happens, you will glorify God in this name. You will not be ashamed of Christ, but you will glory in suffering for his sake. So we must get our priorities straight Peter wants to focus our purpose of suffering, to suffer by glorifying God in this name. But Peter's not finished. He wants to make sure you realize how serious this is. And so he says in verses 17 and 18, he's going to explain that it's better to suffer God's refinery now than to suffer his wrath later. Verse 17, he says, For it is better for judgment to begin with the household of God. Beloved, pay attention. This is a very sobering statement. If you study the history of Israel in the Old Testament, God's covenant people, you will find that they did not get a pass on suffering. (laughs) They did not get a pass on God's disciplinary judgment. In fact, we could argue that God dealt more severely with Israel, his own covenant people, than he did with the pagan nations who were outside his covenant. Because judgment begins with God's household. And this is why Hebrews 12, 5, and 6 says, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved of him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. God doesn't spank the devil's kids, but he sure knows how to take care of his own. And he will. God will discipline his children. If there's a sin being committed in your life, being tolerated in your life, and you're not repenting of this sin, and you're coming here, and you're gathering with God's saints, and you're not uh, confessing this to people that need to know, you're not confessing this to the Lord, and forsaking that sin, and you're partaking of the Lord's table, and you're, you're worshiping God, and you're acting like with your lips that everything's okay, understand, be sure your sin will find you out. God knows about the sin in your life, and if you're his child, he's going to discipline you for that. He's not going to let you go. He loves you too much to be a permissive parent and to permit you to destroy your life. But know also the discipline that God brings upon his children. This discipline is nothing compared with the judgment that God will one day bring upon all those who do not obey the gospel. Verse 17 says, For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins With us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? If God does not allow his children to go undisciplined for their sin, imagine what will be the end. Imagine what will be the judgment that will fall upon his enemies. Hebrews 10.31 says it's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of Of the living God. Verse 18 Peter says. And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved. What will become of the godless man and the sinner? Well we do know. From the words of Jesus Christ. More than anyone in the Bible. That the outcome of the sinners who perish without Christ. They die in their sin. They do not embrace the love and mercy and forgiveness of God. They will be cast into outer darkness. Where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. And yes. Loving Jesus, loved people enough to say that. What will become of the godless man and sinner? Judgment, eternal damnation. And Peter's point is if God will allow such terrible things in the lives of his people as it would seem, if he will allow his people to undergo such cruel judgment at the hands of cruel men in this life, what will be the end of godless sinners? Acts 14.22 tells us that through many tribulations we must enter into the kingdom of God. But if we enter through many dangers and toils and snares, what will be the end of those who perish? That is an amazing thought. It's something to think about. So no, Christians don't get a pass on suffering in this life. But it's better, far better, infinitely better to suffer God's refinery now than to suffer his wrath later and eternally. And whenever we are undergoing suffering, great suffering, the purpose we must remember is ultimately to glorify God. There is a purpose in our present sufferings in this life. The Christian response to suffering means we must expect suffering. And we must exalt in our suffering. And we must endure suffering for the glory of God. But the final principle Peter gives for how a Christian should respond to suffering is entrust yourself to God. It all comes down to this in verse 19. Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. In the end, that's what it all comes down to. To one word. Faith. Trust. Do you trust God? Are you willing to trust him in your suffering? The Greek word translated entrust here means to commit to someone for safekeeping. This was used in economical context like a banking term. They actually didn't have banks in the first century. And so if you were going to go away and you had some amount of treasure or wealth that was precious to you, you would either have to hide it to protect it, or you would commit it, commit your treasure to someone else's safe keepings. Of course, somebody that you could depend upon to keep your treasure secure while you were gone. And so Peter's saying that in suffering for God's will, you can and you must commit yourself. You must commit your soul. You must commit your life. You must commit all those things you're worried about to God. You must cast all your cares upon him, as he will say in chapter 5, knowing he cares for you. You must commit your soul to the safekeeping of God himself. And Peter's choice of words is significant because he here describes our God as what? A faithful creator. God is faithful. Faithful. He doesn't go back on his promises. He's trustworthy. You can hold him to his word. He will never go against what he has said. And he is our creator. He has all power to keep what you've committed to him until that day. Surely our souls are safe. Surely our lives and and our well-being is safe when committed to the safekeeping of our faithful creator. No wonder Jesus could say, he who loses his life, gives up his life for my sake, will save it. Because when we do that, we're giving our life up to the hand of God, and he says, I will keep it. Of course, Jesus would be the ultimate example of this, of one who entrusted himself to God. Peter's already mentioned this in 1 Peter 2.23, that while suffering, Christ uttered no threats but kept entrusting himself to the one who judges righteously. And we don't see that any more graphically illustrated in the life of Christ than in the Garden of Gethsemane, where there Jesus is forsaken by all. He's all alone. There's no family, no friends, no supporters to cheer him on, and there all alone in the dark, it would have been very easy for Jesus to simply slip away and avoid the cross. And no one would have ever caught him. No one would have ever known. But Jesus, there all alone in the dark, resolved to entrust himself once more to the Father. To the Father. To do what is right. To do the will of the Father, no matter the cost. Jesus is our ultimate example of how to entrust our souls in doing what is right. And Peter's saying, now now it falls to you. Now it falls to you to entrust yourself to God. Will you do that? Will you entrust to God your wealth? that you're worried about? Will you entrust to God your health that you're worried about? Will you entrust to God this relationship or whatever it is, whatever would be a source of affliction in your life, are you willing to give up your very life to God and say, Lord, I trust you with this. I trust you even though things aren't going so well, even though things are breaking down, even though you are taking things from my life that I love very dearly, I trust you in whatever circumstance. Nothing is more powerful In a Christian's life, nothing could speak more loudly and clearly to a Christian's testimony than when a Christian knows how to suffer. When a Christian responds to suffering with faith in God, standing firm in the true grace of God. And non-believers look around and there's a peace on your life that passes their understanding and they can't quite understand it. And like those prisoners who heard Paul and Silas in Acts 16, they listen. And they themselves fall down and say, what must I do? What must I do to be saved like you? I want this salvation. I want to know this God who is so real in the midst of suffering. Every Christian, every Christian needs a Christian response to suffering. The response Peter's delineating here, and from this text we've observed four principles that must shape our response to our suffering. If you're a born-again believer and you're struggling to trust God in the midst of something you're going through, and you'd say... I'm hearing this, but this is difficult, and, and, and this is a very complex situation. We don't want to belittle anyone's suffering. These are difficult things, and God has given us the church and his scriptures and, and biblical counsel for the purpose of walking believers through difficult times. And so if you're in a situation where it's so dark and you say, I just don't see the break in the clouds. I need help. Don't, don't uh, be a lone stranger. Don't be a lone Christian. There's no loners in the Christian life. God has given you the church and come and talk to a brother or sister and let's get some biblical counsel and and have someone encourage you from God's word through this time. And if you're here and you'd say, you know, I'm not certain I have a genuine saving relationship with Christ. I'm not sure my soul is safe in, in God's mercy and care. I'm not sure my sins have been forgiven. I'm fearing then that I may face the wrath and judgment of God for my sin. My friend, if that's you, if there's any doubt and your heart about that, you need to see someone today. That's important. God does not take sin lightly. He is a holy God. And so if that is you and you have any doubts, uh, please see me. Please see another brother or sister. We'd love to open the word of God with you and show you how you can rest safe and secure in the grace of God. Let's pray.